First 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. You need to know that these first 11 chapters in the book of Genesis, they, uh, they deal with cosmic-sized realities. And not just cosmic-sized realities in the Bible, like the themes that are developed in the first 11 chapters of Genesis will continue on through the rest of the Bible, but also cosmic-sized realities for humanity, that if you are alive and breathing in this room, if you don't believe in Jesus in this room, you will still, you have encountered, you have experienced some of the realities that, that uh, Genesis 1 through 11 put before you. And so this study of these first 11 chapters, uh, um, we're, we're trying to get in touch with kind of the, the history of our history, the, the origin of our origin, the, the beginning of it all, and trying to understand who is this God that made us, why did he make us, what's his intention in the world, what went wrong, and how's it all going to be made right. The first reading audience of the book of Genesis, the first people that would have read Genesis, would have been a group of former Israelite slaves that had been enslaved in the land of Egypt underneath Pharaoh for 400 years. And they're on their way out of Egypt. Moses, in the book of Exodus, leads them out of Egypt. And he says, hey, I'm taking you, your God Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. He has come to rescue you. He's heard your cries. He's come to rescue and lead you across the wilderness into the promised land. And all these slaves are going, who is this God and who are you and what is this promised land? What are you talking about? And Moses says, let me tell you who you are by telling you who your God is. Here is Genesis. And so this story of Genesis is, is not written to us, but it is written for us. And we are meant to encounter Genesis in a way that says these former slaves who are reading of their origin, these former slaves who are reading of their Yahweh God, the same is true for us. Who is this God? And in light of why he made us and made the world, who does that mean we are to be in the world? How did it go wrong, and how will it be made right? All that is in the first few chapters of Genesis. So, that's what we're studying. We've looked at the creation account, this God who made everything in the opening chapter of the book of Genesis. He knows everything. He delighted to bring order and beauty into the chaos of his creation. And now he sets up, and this is what we're going to dive into today, this pinnacle moment of the creation poem of Genesis chapter 1, where God makes man and woman. So, Genesis 1 Starting in verse 26, here we go. You can turn in your Bibles or it'll be on the screen. Genesis 1, just five verses. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life. I have given every grain plant, every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. So here is the cosmic-sized question, not just that the text would lead us to ask, but that many of us ask on our own. Why did God make man and woman. Scientists love Genesis 1 because it deals with this mystery of the origin of the universe and creation and what is this creation and how does it work in a scientific 
way. But philosophers love Genesis 1 because it begs us to ask this deep question. Why? Why did God do all this? Why did he make? Why did he create? Why did he make man and woman? And I would say, no matter how you might answer that question, why did God make you? Why did God make man and woman? Why did, make God, why did God make the person sitting next to you? No matter how you answer that cosmic-sized question, you probably don't have a cosmic-sized answer for that question, which means you will be left wanting, which means however you answer that question, you are trying to answer an infinite-sized question with a finite answer. And that gap of knowing I need an infinite-sized answer for this infinite-sized question, but I don't know that I have one, basically means we are left in this despairing state. Because I have this innate part of my DNA that knows I'm supposed to answer this question, but I can numb it or avoid it or not want to deal with it. But when I have to deal with it, I need something that's going to answer it, that's going to sustain me, or else why am I here? Not just like, why am I in this room? Why am I here? Why should I stay alive? What's worth living? Why in the world would we even be here? And so we have to wrestle with this until we can't numb it anymore, until we can't push it off anymore. Why are we here? And I would wager with you, and the Bible would wager with you, the reason why you don't have joy is because you don't have an answer big enough for that question. We have not answered that question that would answer it in such a way that would make us feel like there is something worth giving my life away for. There is something worth giving my life to. And if I don't know what I'm supposed to be giving my life to, if I don't know why I'm here, I will be left despairing. And so here's the, the question after the question. Why are we here? Why did God make man and woman? Here's my question for you. Do you think Genesis 1 has an answer for that question? Do you think the Bible has an answer for that question? Because here's what Genesis 1 would put before you. And this is not a what's my vocation supposed to be question or answer. This is not even a, well, doesn't God fill the God-shaped hole in my heart question? Yes, he does. Not what we're talking about here, though. This is a, the God of the universe is writing a story throughout time and space and across history. And how does our little, little, little mist and dot, microscopic dot of a life and a breath, how does it find its place on the timeline of the story of history that the God of the universe has been telling since Genesis 1 story? That's what we're trying to answer. Not, well, what school should I go to? Or what career should I choose? Those are great questions. They're just not going to answer the massive question of why are you here? And is it possible that your little story could get lost in the joy and the purpose and the meaning of finding your little life as a part of God's big story? Is there a meta story, a meta narrative to join my life to? That's actually one of the weaknesses of kind of modernity of the modern age that um, doesn't know how to answer that question. But w we all know the, uh, the, the weakness. We all know the, the, uh, the joylessness of trying to answer the question, why do I exist? Why did God make me? Why, why am I here? And only trying to answer that question when I'm kept inside my own little bubble of a life. I guess I will have to get all of my meaning and purpose and joy and bliss out of my own little life. And we know that that's not meta enough to actually answer that question. We need to know, is there a grand story? We need to know, is there a meta story? Is there a mission not only worth giving my life away for? Is there a mission and a story and a purpose that 
cuts with the grain, cuts with the grooves of why I was made in the first place. And so let's answer that question. Let's see what Genesis 1 has to say about that question. We're going to start with our original design. What was our original design in Genesis 1? You can turn verse 26 and 27 at the end of chapter 1 says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, so in ancient texts, especially ancient Hebrew texts, uh, there was no way for the author to draw the reader's attention to a point they were trying to get across with font control. So you couldn't like bold, italics, you couldn't, you couldn't like highlight it. So how does an author of a poem or a narrative or a story draw the reader in to the point they're trying to make? And the Hebrew, one of the Hebrew contextual ways, one of the Hebrew uh, grammatical ways was to repeat themselves. If an author repeats themselves over and over again, it's trying to almost like annoy the reader, like this is what I'm trying to talk to you about. So in our text, just those two little verses I just read, Three times in two verses, the author tells you that mankind, man and woman, was made in God's image. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The imago Dei, the image of God. That's what's going on right there. Three times in two verses. We are image bearers. We bear the image of the imago Dei. We have been made in God's image image. So what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to be an image bearer? And again, we could talk about, man, again, this thread gets pulled all throughout scripture. We could talk about a lot of things, how it informs your desire, how it informs the eternity in your heart, how it in turn, how it informs what you know to be true, even in an innate sense. But just textually speaking, what does it mean to be an image bearer and how the original readers have read that text? Well, in their world, in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, there were only, there were no democracies. <laughs> they didn't have, like, voting rights. There were only kings and monarchs and emperors, and for these readers, pharaohs. And all that they knew when it came to kings and monarchs and emperors and pharaohs was that when kings come into power, they're faced with a challenge. If a king comes into power because his dad dies and he's now the next in line, or if a king comes to power because they've usurped the throne and started a mutiny and thrown off the former king, whatever, however they got there, the king in power has a challenge. Here's the challenge. How do I let everyone know that I'm the new king? I can send out edicts, I can send out announcements, I can herald it, but how is everyone in the vast sprawl of my kingdom going to know that I am the new king? How are they going to know that? They didn't have Twitter. They didn't have chat GPT to like send out. You know, they didn't have a way to like, oh, we got to get this out. Let me just click one button and everyone's going to know. So how do they do it? Well, one of the first things an ancient world king would do is they would mass produce statues of themselves. Replica statues of their face, of their body, of their crown, of their royalty. They would mass produce statues of themselves, like thousands and thousands of them. And then they would send those replica statues of themselves and they would send them to every corner of their kingdom. Every village, every town, every highway, every byway. They would send them out everywhere. Why? So that 
when people walked through the villages and the towns, when people walked through the lands of the kingdom, they would see the image of this king everywhere. If you want to know who the king is, it's not that hard to find out because his statue, his image would be everywhere. That's how a king would get the word out. He'd take down the old statues of the old king and then mass produce his own statues, his own images, and send them everywhere. His statue would be everywhere. Why? So that anyone who saw a statue would know who the king was. Those statues, same Hebrew word, same Hebrew word, were called images. That's the word in Genesis 1 in our poem. When God says, when the mysterious Godhead here, the mysterious us, let us make man in our image, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the royal trinity, when it says, let us make man in our image, here's literally what they're saying, and here's how the first readers would have read this text in their own context. Let's make living, breathing images of ourself, just like a king would make statues of himself and send them everywhere. That's how God designed man and woman in the beginning. That you would be, that mankind would be, womankind would be reflections of the actual king. Not the king. You were not designed to be the king or the queen. You were designed, you were made to reflect the king. So that anyone who saw you would know there's something royal there. There's something valuable there. There's something that I can't, I don't know what that is, but I know that that lets me know who the king is. So the first thing that should come to your mind when you think about humanity is not sinner. Although we believe, the Bible is very clear, that's true of everyone in this room. That's just not the first thing the Bible has to say about you. The first thing the Bible has to say about you is that you're an image bearer of the king. Do you know what that says about your worth? Do you know what that says about your self-analysis of what you are worth? Because think about this now, in the ancient world, a king sends out his, his massive production of all these statues, images of himself to reflect the knowledge of who the king is in this kingdom. If someone, of a vandal or a rebel, wanted to try to spit on the king, one way they could do it is by toppling down all of his statues. And so a crime committed against an image-bearing statue was the same as a crime against the king himself. You don't get to touch the image bearer because that is representative of who the king is. And so when you destroy a statue, what you're actually doing is you're attempting to destroy the king himself. And so here's what the Bible says about you. You have a worth and a value. You have a dignity. You actually have a protection because of who you are and because of the way God designed you, that no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what your record is, no matter what has gone on in your life, what you've done, no matter how low you've gone, every human being you've ever met has been made in the image of God and therefore reflects God himself. So there's a rock-solid, objective, foundational, irreducible glory and significance and value and worth about you and everybody you've ever met. You reflect the image of the king, so you have an inherent value that cannot be taken away from you. Most modern people go, yes. They just don't know why they even believe that. Because no other religion, no other philosophy, no other way of thought, no other logic will give you an inherent value just because you are a human being. But the Bible, on page one, 
says every single person you've ever met is an image bearer of the king of the universe. I don't care what they believe. I don't care what they've done. I don't care what's been done to them. They have an inherent value because they are an image bearer of the king of the universe. They're worth fighting for, they're worth defending, and they're worth giving justice to. Maybe even more practically, they're worth having a conversation with. They're worth not avoiding. This is the uniqueness of Christianity, that what the world would call trash, Christians give worth and value to because all humans are all human beings are image bearers of the king. But in secular society, and this is not like culture wars, that's not what we're talking about, but in secularism, in modern philosophy, everyone agrees with that sentiment. Human beings have value. Human beings are worth something. Human beings have dignity. But they don't know why. And if you actually extrapolate out the logic of modern philosophy and of modern existentialism and why we exist and what we're for, you will not end yourself in a logical, reasoned argument that actually should give value to human beings. Unless you know that this Western idea that every human being has worth because they're made in the image of God came from page one of the Bible, there is no other basis for giving human beings worth other than this page of Scripture right here. The first page of the story of the Bible is why you have an innate desire to want to give dignity to everybody. And here's what the Bible is saying. This is your original design. Do you know this is what you were made for? Do you know this is how you were designed to reflect the glory and the beauty of the king himself? This is your identity. This is your value. This is how you were designed. And then, in light of the original design of humanity, the very next verse rolls out for humanity because of their design what they are then to go and do. Theologians call it the original mandate. I'm calling it the original duty. Yes, I said duty. Original design leads to our original duty. Verse 28 says this. You can throw this on the screen. God blessed them and said to them, again, this is right after the Imago Dei, right after the original design. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We'll get, uh, there's kind of more color added to uh, this in the next chapter of Genesis. But just based on what we have right here, Adam and Eve, Imago Dei, image bearers, they are given a task. And their first task is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the logical conclusion that I hope you can jump to now is why were they told to be fruitful and multiply? Why were they told to fill the earth? Because they're image bearers. Fill this earth with more image bearers because what do image bearers do? They bring the knowledge and the awareness of who the king is. Who's the only king in human history that has had his image bearers on every corner of the planet? Yahweh. This is why we are to be fruitful and multiply because we are sending out more image bearers to reflect the glory and the beauty of the one who made them. Fill the earth. And then he says, as you do that, as you are bringing knowledge of the king wherever you go to the ends of the earth, and he says, subdue it and take dominion over it. Chapter 2 of Genesis, we use two different verbs. You can kind of combine them together. Chapter 1 says, subdue it, take dominion over it, rule over it. Chapter 2 will say, cultivate and keep it. And so you kind of get this picture, like cultivate and keep, almost like a gardener, like someone nurturing something, 
bringing life to it, ruling over it, not, not being ruled over by it. You are the one bringing dominion where you go as you cultivate and keep it. Here's what it all means when you bring it together. As you are being fruitful and multiplying Adam and Eve, as you are being sent out into all the earth, control it, take care of it, don't let it rule over you, bring it to life, keep it alive, nourish it, sustain it, cultivate it, bring the world to life and keep it alive. That's relationally, socially, economically, structurally, aesthetically, artistically. And as you are doing that, Adam and Eve, as you are planting new gardens, as your offspring is taking new lands, as you are spreading out and and bringing things to life that weren't formerly there, do you know you will be bringing with you the knowledge, the aroma, the ethics, the beauty, and the shalom of the king who you bear the image of? That's what it means to take dominion. If you were here last week, we talked about the six days of creation. We'll get to the seventh day next week when chapter 2 starts to talk about it. But the first three days of creation, God brings form and order out of chaos. And he kind of builds these playgrounds for the days 4, 5, and 6 for the creatures that he makes on 4, 5, and 6 to play on. And so when you get to the bottom, day three of creation mirrors up with day six of creation. He makes the earth, he makes the land for mankind to inhabit on day three. On day six, he's saying, hey, mankind, play on this playground. Dance, sustain life, create beauty, make more beauty. And because you are an image bearer on this playground, you will be informing the world of who the maker and who the king is and what the maker and the king is like. Like if you, logically, God could have done the six days of creation, he could have made the earth and he could have already had every square inch of creation bursting forth with all the cultivation, all the beauty, all the, all the aesthetics, all the joy of creating and sustaining life. But you know what he does on day six when he tells mankind and womankind, go and fill the earth and be fruitful and multiply and take dominion? He's saying, hey, I built this playground. Can we go play on it together? I want to I play with you. Like, let's go create stuff together. Let's, let's go do this together. Let's, I'm giving you the agency as one of my image bearers, as a living, breathing image bearer, to go and create more with me. I want to keep creating. This is what joyful people do. Like, this is what I want. I want to spread the joy. I want to spread the delight. Let's go play on this playground together and bring with you the knowledge of what this king is like and may his glory fill the earth. That's the original design. That's the original mandate. That's the original duty. Now, the order of that is really important. Because God designs humanity and says to them, this is who you are. You reflect the image of a beautiful king. This is your identity. This is your value. This is your worth. Now, because of who you are, now from that place, go and do. Go and and actually make and create and step into what you've been made to do. But the identity comes before the vocation. It's really important. God doesn't say to man and woman in the garden, Be fruitful and multiply, take dominion, cultivate and keep, play on this playground, and if you do a good enough job, you will become an image of God. He doesn't put the performance and the duty and the mandate ahead of the identity. God says, you are my image bearer, and your worth and your value and your dignity comes from that place. This is who you are. In light of that, this is how you are to go and do. Who you are informs what you do. Can we play on this playground together? 
So what happened to that? How come the world doesn't feel like that? What happened to this vision of ourselves and our vision of our maker that would actually set it up to be this delightful? Well, two chapters later, sin happens. And it's really important, I know this is hard, especially if you've grown up in the church, to detangle our definition of sin. And actually, I would say, it's way too small. (laughs) It's also um, not very helpful. Because here's how the Bible presents sin and what happens to the image bearers when they rebel against the king that made them and sent them in chapter 1. Here's what sin does to the original design, and here's what sin does to the original duty. You are still an image bearer. You still have inherent dignity and inherent value. But like one of these clay statues that would have been an image bearer of an ancient king, that image bearer has now been shattered into a thousand pieces. You've been wrecked by sin. Sin has shattered the image bearer that you were originally designed to be. It's ruined the way that you think of God, and because of that, it's crushed the way you think of yourself. It's decimated your self-worth, and it's confused your identity, and so we are a remarkably confused people because can you imagine a thousand pieces of an image-bearing statue spread out on the floor, and, you, and if it could talk to you and you would go, hey, what are you supposed to be? The thousand pieces would go, I have no idea. I have no idea what I'm supposed to be. I have no idea what I was made for. I'm shattered on the floor. We don't know who we are because we're in pieces. And so sin is so not just what we do. Sin is a condition that we are in. Now, because of the condition we're in, shattered on the floor in a thousand pieces, sin then causes us to do heinous things and to have heinous things done to us. But sin is the shattering of the image of God. Sin is the shattering of the original design and the original duty. Like think about, think about okay, if you kind of understand the, the categories of original design and then original mandate, original duty, think about what now, shattered on the floor, a thousand pieces, what taking dominion now would be like or how challenging that might be. Now, because our image has been shattered and our identity has been shattered, we don't know who we are because we've been, we're, we're sprawled out on the floor. Now we're told to take dominion and be fruitful and multiply and rule over it and cultivate it and keep it. I have no idea how to do that. So maybe as in this shattered state, maybe what we begin to think about or how we begin to think about ourselves is, well, I don't know who I am because I'm in a thousand pieces. So maybe I'll find who I am by what I go and do. I will make my vocation tell me who I am. But I'm not actually sure who I am. So now maybe my work as an accountant or a lawyer or a student or a mother or a pastor feels impossible to rule over because everything's in shambles. But I need this thing that I'm doing to tell me who I am. Hey, vocation. Hey, job. Hey, mandate. Hey, duty. Will you repair me and restore me and make me feel like I'm worth something? I'm trying to make work into something that it was never created to be, which is an identity maker. It wasn't meant to do that. And so now, instead of ruling over creation, creation rules over me. But remember how it was supposed to be? Remember the original design informs the original duty? You have an identity. You're an image bearer of the king. 
You have value. You have dignity. You have a king and you belong to a kingdom and you're meant to reflect the beauty of that kingdom. Now, in light of who you are, go and do. Sin inverts that. And sin would say to you, take what you do and make it give you an identity. Take what you do and make it give you value. Take what you do and make it give you purpose. Make your kids validate your existence. <laughs> like if, my ki- if I can, okay, I'm going to make sure my kids turn out a certain way, and if they turn out a certain way, then I'll feel good about myself, and I don't really know who I am, but man, if my kids turn out okay, then maybe I'll know who I am. If they're okay, then maybe I'll feel okay. Or maybe if I can make enough income, it'll make me feel like I matter. If I have enough money in the account, I'll feel like I have worth in the world. And it's so subtle But do you see how that's actually you trying to make yourself feel like you're enough of something? You trying to make yourself feel like you have value because of what you've done. But as a shattered image bearer, you're actually trying to restore yourself by what you do. Which logically, just follow that out. Do you realize how confused you would be? You don't even know who you are. So maybe I can put myself back together so that I can accomplish enough and achieve enough and accrue enough and perform enough and do enough that then I'll feel like I'm put back together. But if you don't even know what you were supposed to be put together for, what are you working towards? What end is that trying to create for you? This is why your life hurts. This is why there's pain and heartache. This is why, this is why your entire body is groaning for restoration. You are a shattered image bearer that is dying to be restored. And no amount of family, no amount of relationships, no amount of job, no amount of income or an inheritance can actually put you back together. It can't be done, but we'll try because sin is inverted that now I don't know who I am, so I better go do and be and perform if I'm going to learn who I am. Not how it was intended. So what in the world are we to do? Is there anything that could restore our original design and then recommission us into our original duty and our original mandate? Well, most kings in the ancient world, whenever their image-bearing statues would get destroyed, there's a mutiny or someone topples over uh, one of the statues in the town square. If they find out that their statue's been shattered and, and split into a thousand pieces... They would just throw those pieces out (laughs) and then make new ones. But that's not the king that we have. See, we have a much different king who likes making things new again. Jesus is not like earthly kings. That instead of throwing us out, King Jesus has actually come to put us back together. And so this is what happens on the cross The cross is the place where the king was shattered so that you and I could be put back together. The cross was the place where the king was decimated so that you and I might be mended. The cross was the place where the king was literally torn apart so that you and I might be restored. That's what the king came to do because he's not like other kings. And Jesus then looks at all these shattered image bearers that Jesus who was there at creation Jesus, who in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was there. Sees what sin does to his image bearers, and it shatters them. And there's all these broken images of the king everywhere. And he looks 
at the outcasts and the prostitutes and the sinners and the thieves and the drunks and the widows and the neglected children and the addicts. He looks at all of them and he says, you're mine. I made you in my image and so I've come to restore you. I know what sins you've done and I know what sin has done to you. And I came to be ripped apart so that I could put you back together again. I came to lose my glory so that you could have my glory and be rightly restored to the glory of being a fully intact image bearer of the king. And actually, if you follow the thread of this language throughout scripture, this is the language of the New Testament. When the New Testament talks over and over again about being made new by Jesus, Romans 8, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, 1 Corinthians 15, there's several others. Where the language of restoration, the language of being made new, we're actually told, people who belong to Jesus, the church is actually told that in this process of being made new, it says you will be restored to the image of Jesus. One day at a time, one degree of glory to another, you will be restored into looking and loving like Jesus, which was your original design anyway. He begins to transform us into the image of his son by the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel. That's what the king has come to do. Restore you to your image-bearing self. He's forgiven you. He's given you a new record. He's given you a new standing. He's invited you to belly up to his table. He puts his Holy Spirit inside of you. He commits himself to you, and then he commissions you. And as he commissions you with this, this restoring of the original design and the original duty, he says, let me heal and kiss your scars and wounds so that you might be a mended image bearer that sin had formerly shattered. Anyone in here done kintsugi, Japanese art form? I have not, but I've read about it, and you can watch YouTubes on it, and it's amazing. And here's what it is. Sometimes intentionally, but not always, um, there will be a shattered piece of pottery, a shattered piece of art. And however it got shattered is not the point, but here's what the artist does. Here's what a kintsugi artist does. Is they actually seek to mend the broken pieces back together, but when they mend it, guess what is in between the cracks? Guess what is actually holding it together? Solid gold. And so this new piece of art that is created from the shattered pieces, this new piece that they have is actually, literally, more valuable than the original piece. So the broken, shattered pieces actually get restored into a new value, even actually more beautiful version than the original. That's starting to get close to what the Bible is talking about that says, I've actually mended you with the blood of the king that's more valuable than gold. And what's holding you together is the blood of Jesus, the king himself. Now as a mended, more valuable image bearer, you get resent into the world to take back dominion. You get recommissioned into the world to rule over the world and to bring beauty out of the world. And now, 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 because of Jesus, we can actually be sent into where God has placed us and I don't need where God has placed me to give me an identity. I have an identity. Jesus has given me value and dignity. And so I don't need this place to validate me. I don't need what I do with my hands or with my time. I don't need it to tell me who I am. I already know who I am. So now I can do this crazy thing. And I can actually be where God has placed me. And I can just be faithful there. I can just be there as a reflection of the king and his beauty and what he's done for me. 
And think about that. Like, go back to the original context. Being How much, like, voting power, how much say did one of the images of the king get in where they were placed? Like, I don't want to be in this village. I want to be in the big, you know, I want to be in the big town. I don't, I don't want to be in Nashville. I want to be in, like, Des Moines or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> like, you don't, it's not about, like, hey, would you send me to a different place? It's like, hey, you don't need all that. You can just be faithful here and actually just reflect the king here because you don't need what you do or where you've been sent to tell you who you are. The king has told you who you are, and the king has mended you with his blood, so you can just go and be faithful to the king. As a restored image bearer, I can do something as courageous as work a very mundane job or raise children, which feels impossible, or be an artist or a financial planner or wherever God has sent you, I can be there and take dominion over that place to rule over it because it doesn't have to rule over me. I know who I am. I don't need this place to tell me who I am. Richard Pratt, Dr. Richard Pratt, is one of my seminary professors. I called him this week the, um, the Rick Rubin of theologians. Four of you got that. That means he's awesome, okay? That means he's OG. Um, look up who Rick Rubin is and then look up who Richard Pratt is. But here's what he says about this idea. The great king has summoned each of us into his throne room. Take this portion of my kingdom, he says. I am making you my steward over your office, your workbench, your musical instrument, your kitchen stove. Put your heart into mastering this part of my world. Get it in order and unearth its treasures. Do all you can with it. Then everyone will see what a glorious king I am. That's why we get up every morning and go to work, he says. We don't labor simply to survive. Insects do that. Our work is an honor, a privileged commission from our great king, and God has given us a portion, a little, little, little portion of his kingdom to explore and develop into its fullness and beauty. That's why you were made. That's the meta story that's worth giving your life away for. And Christian, you are a restored image bearer. Now go into all the world and bring the aroma and the knowledge of the king with you. And here's what you will tell people when they ask you. Let me tell you what sin has done to shatter me, but let me tell you what my Jesus has done to mend me. Let's pray. Jesus, we know what it's like to be shattered and we have glimpses of what it's like to be restored and mended. And you say in the cracks, not only is there light in the cracks, but there's blood there too. And your blood that holds us together, your blood that has mended us. May we go into all the world full of humility that we are just merely image bearers of the great king. But full of confidence and worth knowing what our great king has done for us to put us back together. Send us out now, Father, to our living rooms, to our schools, to our offices, to our campuses. Send us out not to fight a war, but to reflect the image and the beauty of the king who has placed us in a little portion of his kingdom to unearth its treasures and its beauty. Guide us now as we close in song. We pray in your name. Amen.